0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The place of women in the world and in the American society has changed in many aspects in the recent past. Many people say this is due to the politics of feminism, and some inquire, where will it lead? Our guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious is Estelle B. Friedman, In 2002, she was a professor of history at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, and has a specialty in feminism. She's the author of No Turning Back, The History of Feminism and the Future of Women. She addresses many of the issues in her book in our conversation in this program. I spoke with Professor Friedman by phone in April of 2002 and asked her to talk about why feminism did not evolve as people evolved and civilization developed.
1: Well, the historical argument that I make is that feminism is born of a very particular historical moment, so that we can't talk about feminism in ancient history or medieval history, that feminism is a politics that comes out of the Enlightenment and the call for the rights of man, a period of questioning of hierarchies of all kinds, and talking about self-determination for people.
0: Can you give us some examples?
1: Well, Mary Wollstonecraft, writing at the end of the 1700s, very much a supporter of the French Revolution and a a radical political thinker, becomes one of the first feminist writers really calling, not just for education, but for opportunities for women, and questioning the relegation of women in the Western tradition to only the home and motherhood. Another example would be the anti-slavery movement in the U.S. in the 1830s and 1840s, another moment when these ideas of what we sometimes call modern democratic societies or the era of democratic revolutions. Abolitionists want to extend the rights of man to black men as well as white men. And some of the women involved, like Sarah Angeline Grimke or uh, Sojourner Truth, a former slave, or Frederick Douglass, another former slave, all of them called for extending those rights to all women and all men. So you can see that connection between an idea of equal rights and extending it to its logical conclusion, really. Uh, I I would say that in earlier eras, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, most societies accepted a hierarchy. It was patriarchy. It was the rule of elites or of of aristocrats or monarchs. And here's this moment historically when that changes. And we call for self-representation. And that's when you get the birth of feminism.
0: Well, what occurred, uh, from your perspective, um, during the Seneca Falls meetings and uh, the suffragist organization in the 1870s through the 1890s, that did not result in women having the right to vote at that time?
1: Why suffrage took so long, essentially, is that what you're asking? Yes. Yes. Well, it's a huge change to go from a worldview in which women are dependent on men in the family, that the bargain is that men are going to take care of women and women are going to be dependent on men, and that men represent women politically. They vote for the whole family. It's a big change to have women have independent identities as citizens. And I argue, in No Turning Back, that the momentum that change gradually builds, not just because of those political ideals we were talking about, but also because of changes in the economy. And the more that women enter wage earning, the more that women enter professions, higher education, teaching, and particularly in the 20th century, as our economy needs more women workers, the clerks and the department stores, and later the communications revolution, that there's a greater momentum for extending those political ideals. So it's really two pieces here historically. One is the political ideal, self-representation, but the other is the economic change of industrialization and wage labor and market economies and really the shift from the old family self-sufficient farm to the urban commercial economy where women increasingly are involved in that public world of labor and as consumers. So what I'm saying is that eventually – Women are in the public world. They become full citizens gradually, and that's when you begin to get public opinion empowering women politically as well.
0: Well, what about the sexual freedom that was uh, advanced by the birth control pill in the early 1960s that allowed women to stay in the public world? What, uh, What power do you give to that?
1: I give it some power, but historically I want to go way back because women were controlling fertility in the United States long before the 1960s. I'll give you some statistics. In 1800, the average married woman bore around 8 children. In 1900, the average married woman bore around 4 children. By 2000, around 2 children. That did not wait for the birth control pill. That change in fertility control comes with farm to city, agriculture to industry and commercial Children are no longer an economic asset. We don't need them as farm laborers. They're not going to take care of their elderly parents. Society is changing, and families decide to have fewer children. They use diaphragms. They use condoms. They use abstinence. They use abortion, which wasn't criminalized, you know, till the 1870s and later, and they continue to use it when it's illegal. What I think the birth control pill does is, open up publicly this conversation, not just about marital fertility control, but premarital use of contraception. And also it coincides with a new sexual value system that's emerging in the post-war period. And so I don't think that it's the pill per se that makes these changes, but it's rather part of a much longer use of contraception in marriage and then later outside of marriage.
0: Going back a little bit to... um the control of women and the hierarchies which control women, what role would you put uh, on religion in doing that?
1: Historically, religion has had a dual effect on women. On the one hand, many Western religions have relegated women to secondary roles. Women are not prophets. Women do not speak to God. They have to be led by male clergy. On the other hand, Religion has often given space for women to have authority. I'm thinking of Buddhist nuns, Catholic nuns, who in the Middle Ages, for example, in Europe, Catholic nuns had huge uh, monasteries or nunneries where the women uh, in the convents ran the place and were learned and created. So there could be a space outside of marriage for women, whether it was um, Buddhist women in China who were not marrying in a fairly patriarchal system, or the nuns in Europe who were able to have education and be creative and not marry. So, religion also has given women spiritual authority when they are married and have children, as either teachers of children, or in the Jewish tradition, domestic religion, the importance of certain domestic rituals for the religion. So, it's a double edged um, sword. And what's happened, I think, with feminism since the 1800s and in the last century, women asking to be able to be spiritually empowered not only in the private sphere of the home or by giving up marriage, but to be spiritually empowered in the same ways that men can be, that is, as followers or leaders in the home or in the church or synagogue. And there's been enormous change on that front, certainly in the West, as women enter the ministry and the rabbinate and have taken much more Active roles as leaders in religions and not only as followers.
0: Estelle, let's uh, bring this into the current time. Um, how do you analyze feminism now um, in the 21st century?
1: For me, one of the most exciting things I found in working on No Turning Back was the way that the historical changes that we describe in the West in the 1800s and 1900s are moving into many other parts of the world.
0: For example,
1: well, we, will, we can find women organizing women on every continent on the earth right now. We have the UN conferences in the 1970s, the 80s, and 90s, um, whether you're looking at uh, Mexico City from 1975 to Beijing in 1995, brought thousands and thousands of organizers together to learn about women's movements in Africa and South Asia everywhere in latin america and they range they range from mothers organizing in latin america to find their disappeared children to mothers in east los angeles who are calling for a moratorium on prison construction because their sons are going to go to prison from that maternalist politics all the way to the reproductive rights activists and the west and in other parts of the world to the women in africa who are doing grassroots village health care and changing attitudes about female genital cutting in the process of that health education.
0: Well, how about for uh, teenage girls in America?
1: In America, teenage girls, I think, have a really hard time. And as much as people talk about the progress we've made for women in this country, I see late adolescents in college, and I certainly know from younger women, that the concerns about the body, sexual vulnerability, the extent of abuse of both girls and boys in childhood, the extent of eating disorders, all suggest that young women in our culture are very conflicted about whether they are judged by appearance or by their minds and souls. And I think that we still have a long way to go in treating adolescent girls in a way that will empower them to become women who are strong and confident one way that we've made a lot of progress is athletics. You know, the feminist movement helps to change the law so that schools have got to give money to girls' sports as well as boys' sports. And that has created a generation now of even professional athletes, collegiate professional athletes, who've come through those programs. And that's one way of empowering girls physically and mentally. But I think we have more work to do on that. Still, Teachers call on boys more than girls. And I think that many young girls don't see the opportunity, specifically um, young girls of color, uh, some immigrant young girls, need a lot of mentoring and need to know that really the sky's the limit, that they can do and should be allowed to do whatever they want with their lives.
0: I want to ask you uh, how... The sky can be shown to be the limit, especially to girls of color. But first I want to say, this week we're talking with Professor Estelle B. Friedman about her new book, No Turning Back, The History of Feminism and the Future of Women. You're listening to Radio Curious, I'm Barry Vogel. Estelle, how can uh, these images or role models be presented uh, where they have been absent in the past?
1: One of the places we are finding them is in culture, in literature. I think there's been an explosion of wonderful literary representations, whether it's the novels of Toni Morrison or uh, the poetry of Maya Angelou, uh, and the work of writers um, in Native American women writers. Of, Mexican-American women writers, I think of the work of Shreema who have really been inspirational to this generation coming of age to take themselves seriously as creative artists and also as strong, free women who can make their own choices. So I think some of that is happening in culture. Uh, we can see it in theater, in novels, in poetry. What it hasn't penetrated as much is popular culture outside of those who are looking for The feminist message, Um, although I think that some of this feminist literature has made the mainstream. uh, There's still a lot of mainstream images in Hollywood and in advertising that tend to limit the representations of women and create this ideal of the thin white woman with a beautiful body, and that that is what we should all aspire to. And I think that's damaging to girls and women. And quite honestly, I think it's damaging to men, too, because most of them really cannot aspire to possessing this woman.
0: It's interesting that you use the word possess. Yes. What do you mean?
1: Well, I think that those media images create fantasies. That that beautiful, thin, white woman is something that if you buy the product she's advertising, you will then, in a sense, be buying access to her. It's a fantasy. It's not true. And that's why I think it's damaging not just for the women, but also for the men who are, in a sense, being encouraged to spend their money on the things these women are advertising.
0: But it's certainly an effective marketing tool.
1: Yes, I think you're right. It can be very effective. But I think that if we could bring alternative images into the market, that it would in some way help to undermine that power. And going back to the question of athletics, have you noticed that we do have some alternative images now of strong female athletes, um, as well as of working and professional women and of women scientists? The more we have those kind of images in the media and in advertising, I think the healthier we will all be and we'll be a little more tuned to our reality.
0: Generally, social and political movements come from the people who are oppressed by the status quo. How do you see those kinds of uh, images being brought into the forefront? Uh, Is it the commercialism that's involved, or would it be the oppressed women moving forward?
1: Well... Those who study social movements argue that sometimes it's not the most oppressed who organize because they don't have the resources. If you're just barely being able to survive, it's harder to go out and organize. Sometimes it's those who have, you know, that revolution of rising expectations, women who get a little bit of education, then begin to mobilize in trying to seek greater rights. And I think that if you look around the world, right now there are many women in countries like India and in certain countries in Africa and Latin America where women who have had some opportunities, let's say access to education, access to the media, are trying to mobilize to help those who are really the most impoverished. Seventy percent of those living in poverty in the world today are female and women represent two-thirds of those who are illiterate in the world. Now, when you're illiterate and living in poverty, it's hard to go out and petition your legislature. And so we have many projects around the world to try to bring literacy to women, to try to bring economic enterprise, projects like microlending, uh, which started in uh, South Asia and has spread around the world. And I think that when I talk about those conferences in Beijing, for example, of women get coming together to share... What do we need to do in different cultures? Sometimes those women are coming from the most, quote, oppressed, but sometimes they're those who are trying to enable change for the women who can't get to a conference or who are not exposed to some of these world uh, movements and media. And, uh, you know, I argue in No Turning Back that these kinds of changes have implications for our whole world for men and women because if you can bring literacy to those women, if you can bring some of the women living in poverty out of poverty through becoming small entrepreneurs, for example, everybody's standard of living in the family will increase, and you begin to cut some of that gap between the rich and the poor. You begin to bring whole families out of poverty. So addressing the empowerment of women around the world, I think, really is going to help all of us, and it's also going to help women who are in the most oppressed situation. For example... If you have a woman who is completely economically dependent on a man in a poor family, and if there is hostility in the family, if there's domestic abuse, if he is taking out his poverty, let's say, on women and children in the family, she's not able to leave that abuse unless she has a resource. a uh, Domestic violence shelter, an economic empowerment program, a literacy training program is going to... Give her leverage in the household either to end that abuse or to leave it and to be able to start over.
0: Estelle, in your book, Uh, No Turning Back, you talk about um, the feminists' debate of pornography and sex work. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, there's been a long standing conflict of, about strategies in terms of what do we do with offensive images of women, pornographic images of women. And on the one hand, some feminists emphasize the danger of those images and their exploitation of women. And when women go into sex work as prostitutes or working in the pornography industry, that they're exploited. Other feminists who are against censorship and feel we need more free speech and that women have been denied the opportunity to speak about sex, think we need to give every woman a choice. Does she want to engage in sex work, prostitution, pornography? Should women be producing their own feminist pornography? And sometimes there's been angry debate between those who emphasize the dangers of sex and those who emphasize the pleasures of sex. My argument is that if you take the long view, there is a common ground under both of those, and I think both sides are arguing for sexual self-determination. That is, to extend that right to self-determination, to sexuality. One group wants women not to be forced into sex work or pornography, and only if women have other economic choices will they not feel forced into it. Remember, we still have a wage gap, and it's a particularly big wage gap for immigrant women and women of color, so that is there a choice in terms of how they can support themselves? The other side wants sexual self-determination of women being able to explore sexual pleasure, whatever that means. So I do think there's a common ground there of, determination, of of women determining their own sexuality and their choices. But some people emphasize one part of it and some the other. I mean, I, you, I could probably...
0: Estelle, let's talk about the uh, conflict that many women feel about uh, being a mother, having a family, and being a wage earner or being a professional.
1: Yes, that's a good question, because women have increasingly been working for wages in our country and around the world. Most mothers now are also wage earners. Indeed, most mothers of small children are also wage earners. And what feminism is trying to come to terms with today is how can we accommodate the wage earning mother through adequate child care, through tax credits for child care, but also through bringing men into the family and into the kind of caregiving work that women have been doing for so long in the initial stages of feminism I think in our own century or in our own lifetime in the 20th century we emphasized getting women into the wage labor force and now we're talking more about how to bring men into the caregiving force if you look at Scandinavia there's some wonderful policies that are giving extra time off with pay for fathers to stay home with their young children And increasingly, men are taking advantage of that opportunity. So social policy can help with that, as can the way we raise boys and girls, so that they're not separated into those who will be parents and those who will not have the opportunity to be parents. Uh, That's one way we can look at the issues of work and family. Feminists are really seeking social policies to break down that caregiver-breadwinner divide and allow both men and women to engage in both kinds of activities.
0: Let's talk about politics. California is unique in that uh, both senators are women. What do you see uh, as the change of women being involved in policymaking positions in government, politics, and uh, business?
1: It's been an enormous change. There have been more and more women going into elected office not only in the United States but in Latin America and Western Europe, the percentage of women in the legislatures has doubled in the last generation. Now, it's still small, more like 13% in this country and up to 25 or more percent in parts of Europe and Scandinavia, almost up to half, but it's the increase that gives me the sense of momentum, the sense of no turning back. Not only are women going into politics, but they're going into politics more explicitly as women representing women's interests than they once did when they were the few token women who had to be more warlike than men, if you know what I mean. We have organizations like Emily's List here or Win-Win in Japan in which women raise money for women candidates. And we have some very interesting new electoral mechanisms to try to achieve political equity In France last year, a program called Parité was put into effect in which political parties, in order to get their full funding from the state, have to nominate equal numbers of men and women on the ballot. And this went into the municipal elections last year, so you now have 50% women in many municipal positions. In India, there's a somewhat related mechanism in which low-caste And female candidates are given slots on the ballot, and as a result, there are now thousands of low-caste women in India who have become members of municipal councils, and they have put that position to work to get better water, better sewage, the issues that really affect women and girls who otherwise would spend most of their life hauling water. That means girls can go to school, learn to read, and become literate. So I see electoral change feeding back into the kind of social changes we were talking about to empower women around the
0: world. Estelle, the subtitle of your book concludes uh, with the future of women. What do you see as the future of women?
1: I see a world in which women have full human rights that those democratic ideals of the past few centuries and those market economies that are spreading throughout the world are going to create the conditions for feminists, for women's movements, for male allies, to really demand that women have full human rights economically, politically, sexually. It's not going to come inevitably, only with vigilance, only with affecting new social policies, only with monitoring human rights and making women's lives part of the human rights agenda. Will that happen? But I do believe the momentum is there and there will be no turning back from this effort to make women full citizens in every way.
0: Professor Estelle Friedman, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book, or perhaps two, that you've read lately.
1: Well, the first things that come to my mind, uh, the first thing is fiction. I recently had the chance to read Margaret Atwood's wonderful novel, The Blind Assassin, and I felt that in addition to being a brilliantly constructed novel, at the core are some of those feminist concerns about the impact of public events on the private lives of women and the way that women see the world differently from their experiences in the home. It reminded me of reading Virginia Woolf in many ways and breaking down that public-private divide that uh, feminism has questioned in our last century. And the other book I read recently and indeed went to see as a play is Eve Ensler's The Vagina Monologues, which is a great example of feminist theater trying to change the world.
0: Professor Estelle B. Friedman, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Stanford University professor Estelle B. Friedman is the author of No Turning Back, The History of Feminism and the Future of Women. The books she recommends are The Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood and The Vagina Monologues by Eve Ensler. This interview was recorded in April of 2002 and first broadcast at that time. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California,